When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And sitting in for Adam this week, I'm Katie Reif. I'm looking for the man who shot and killed my father, Frank Ross, in front of the Monarch Boarding House. The man's name is Tom Cheney. They say he's over in Indian Territory, and I need somebody to go after him. What's your name, girl? My name is Maddie Ross. Haley Steinfeld with Jeff Bridges in the Coen Brothers' True Grit. Steinfeld's Maddie Ross, a great recent example of a key female character in the boys' club that is the movie Western. This week's film spotting top five, Women in Westerns. We've also got a review of Damsel, a new Western of sorts, starring Mia Wasikowska and Robert Pattinson. All that and more. I'm tired. <laughs> we got a long way to go, Katie. I told you. Ahead on film spotting. I'm tired. Sick and tired of love. I've had my fill of love. Howdy and welcome to Film Spotting. I'm Josh with Adam off for the week. My guest is the AV Club's Katie Reif. Welcome, Katie. Hello. Nice to be here. I'm so glad you agreed to do this. We know of you as the news editor at the AV Club, but that seems to entail everything from, you were just telling me, the box office reports. I know you do reviews, you do Mm -hmm. interviews. So is there anything you don't do over there? Well, I don't do much in the way of comic book or podcast coverage. But okay. Yeah, I do. I do uh, film and TV and music. That's quite a bit, and <laughs> we're glad you took a break from that to join us this week. It's really great to have you on the show. We are going to saddle up the horses and head to Outlaw Country for our top five women in westerns. We've also got a review of the new western Damsel with Mia Wasikowska and Robert Pattinson. That comes to theaters this weekend here in Chicago and elsewhere. Before we get to all that, though, Katie, I probably should have vetted you with this question earlier Uh-oh. before we got here in the studio, but... I need to find out your top five movie Chris's. We did this last week yeah. in connection with Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom. Okay. Tried to decide where Chris Pratt ranked in this Evans, Hemsworth, Pine okay. battle. I know this may be something you need days to consider, a lot of time to think about. That's how I handled it. I took it very seriously. But would you be willing, just off the cuff here, to rank them for us? Rank those five Chris's? Yeah, or? those four Chris's. We threw in Chris O'Dowd as our fifth. because That's a good Chris. Exactly. I, I moved him up to number four, ahead of one of nice. the Chris's, in fact. But where would you go? Give me, of those four Chris's, how would you rank them? Okay, Pine number four. Oh, boy. Evans number three. 
Pratt number two and Hemsworth number one. That is well, straight off the top of my head. Okay. We'll we'll just move on then. Ah! I, ha- I have a few issues, but we've got to get to this week's show. Ah! All right. That important business being out of the way, let's head to the Wild West circa 1870 for a review of Damsel, which has Robert Pattinson as a wealthy pioneer journeying across America to marry the love of his life. Or is she? Here's the plan. Bend a knee. I'll ask her to be my wife. And then you, you do your, uh, your ceremony. Marriage is a big jump. It's hard. And things don't always go the way you want them to. Guess that's what it boils down to. Are you really a preacher? Not in the conventional sense, but my heart's in the right place. You gave me mixed signals. I gave you no signals! If you're gonna go on questioning the validity of my feelings, then you can go to hell. You're a regular black widow, ain't you? Things are going to be lousy in new and fascinating ways. You always said the miniature horse was the cutest, most beautiful critters you've ever seen. I never said that. Like Kumiko the Treasure Hunter, the first effort from brother filmmaking team Nathan and David Zellner, Damsel turns on a what-if proposition. In Kumiko, they asked what would happen if a Tokyo office worker believed a VHS copy of Fargo contained clues to buried treasure. In Damsel, they wonder what it would be like to stage a Western in which the cowboy was dainty and the damsel was gruff. Robert Pattinson plays the dainty Samuel, a well-off traveler who has arrived at a frontier town with a miniature horse in tow. He hires a parson, played by David Zellner, and tells him that they must rescue his fiancée Penelope, played by Mia Vesikovska, who has been kidnapped. Why a parson? so that immediately after she's freed, the two can be married. The miniature horse named Buttercup is a wedding gift. From there, Damsel goes on to tweak, though I'd say never quite lampoon, Western cliches, especially when we finally meet Penelope and discover she's not exactly the delicate flower that Samuel has described. Perhaps we'll get to some spoiler talk toward the end of our review, Katie, that addresses that. (laughs) All of this is told with a bone-dry sense of humor and deliberate pacing, two other qualities the movie shares with Kumiko. So the Zellners definitely have a distinct vibe, one that I can recognize, if not always entirely get in tune with. It's a bit like seeing a wave, but not being able to surf it. Okay. So I'm curious where you stand on the Zellners in general and in regard to Damsel in particular. Can you catch their wave or do you feel like you're sitting on your surfboard while it passes by? I would say more I caught the wave and then fell off of it. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) And regarding Damsel? Regarding Damsel in particular, yeah. I preferred Kumiko to Damsel in terms of the two Zellner Brothers movies that I've seen. I was really on board with the tone at the beginning of the film, which, like you said, was that real deadpan comedy. And I was kind of getting a – maybe it's because the directors are brothers, but I was like, this is kind of like Cullen Brothers crossed with Zucker Brothers. It's like very silly but Mm -hmm. also very dry. Um, like in the saloon scene at the beginning of the film, I was very on board for that. But as the film went on, uh, it kind of it it had trouble sustaining that tone. I thought. Yeah, I, I'd say I had a similar experience, and you're absolutely right about those first 20, 30 minutes. I would give a lot of the credit to that, of course, to the Zellners for establishing that tone and, and this concept in general. 
but also Pattinson. He's just delightful, I think. The, oh, my God. The saloon scene is really good where he, you know, he orders, it's a Pilsner, right? Doesn't yeah. He, I think he orders, he orders a, a Pilsner specifically, and they say, we only have whiskey, and he takes a little sip of the whiskey. Exactly. He sets the glass back down. It's very funny. He has a delicate stomach, he yeah. explains. I, I just like how he owns the daintiness, right? It's not like he's coming to this rough town full of Western cliches and he's going to necessarily try to fit in. I mean, he's wearing the outfit. He's dressed, right? Like a cowboy. Mm -hmm. But he carries himself almost almost like a marionette puppet or something. He's just kind of gangly and out of sorts. And yeah, sipping the whiskey, the conversation he has with the other guy there at the bar is, is really funny. And I was happy to follow him through this series of Western cliches just to see how he's going to deconstruct it. And, and of mm -hmm. course, the horse is part of that, right? Even seeing Buttercup alongside these Mustangs is just a great gag there. And they go on to show, of course, we get an insert shot of a spittoon, but there's like a a cat sitting on oh, it, kind of winking at us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I found that delightful as well. That was a very, I mean, I was surprised the kitten wasn't like soaked with spit from <laughs> right. being in the spit dude. That's a good point. They don't. That, I guess that's why I say it's not a lampoon. They don't quite push it that far, mm -hmm. right? It's enough to just have the shot we expect with a little twist on mm -hmm. it, a little tweak to it. So yeah, there is a lot of that uh, in terms of the approach early on. Now, when he does meet up with Zellner, the parson, how did that performance strike you? Do you think it was it was also in the right vibe with what Pattinson was doing and what the movie overall was doing? Well, I think they played out well off of each other in the sense that Pattinson is kind of a, a fussy guy. When you were discussing his character, I think his character, he has money and he knows he has money to spend. And I think that maybe he's got a confidence from that, from uh, being kind of a rich guy, but he's not cocky about it. Like you said, he seems more like he's read about cowboys in books, but has never actually seen one in real life. Yeah, right. Compare that to the character of the preacher, which is very grizzled and has seen a lot of things. So I think they played off of each other well, but in terms of the two performances, I just was really taken with Pattinson's. And Zellner, I think, was there more to lift up Pattinson then to take the spotlight for himself. Sure. That makes sense. And and there's probably another Pattinson moment we should highlight, which is the song that he sings oh. <laughs> to the parson. He regales him with this song that he wrote for Penelope. I think it's called My Honey Bun. And it's pretty bad. <laughs> it's really bad. <laughs> I would say. And it's, it's also tweaking another cliche, you know, the singing cowboy. And it goes on forever. My honey bun. My honey bun My honey bun My honey bun I love you Can't you see My honey bun And I will say, you know, this relates to the Zellner style as well. They let their scenes breathe in both films. And I think some scenes it's more successful than others. In this scene, it was such an integral part of the gag. So safe to say, without giving too much away, we'll get into spoilers, but Penelope, Vasikovska, we see her during the opening credit sequence, a really goofy barn dance number mm -hmm. that's kind of lovely in a silly way. Yeah. But other than that, she disappears till about the midpoint of the film. Uh, let me just ask you this. 
did you see coming what we discover? Or was there at that point still some surprise for you? Not exactly in that way. I didn't, the specifics of it were different than I expected, but I did expect there to be some sort of inversion on the trope. And it was the logical inversion on the trope for me. It didn't completely take me by surprise. Yeah, I'd say that's fair too. The way things had been going, you expected it to continue in that way and involve her character. Aside from that, how'd you like her in the film? I, I Again, Pattinson was the clear standout to me. She seemed to enjoy playing, you know, a more aggressive kind of role, but I never really got as much sense of fun from her as I got from Robert Pattinson. She didn't seem to be having as much fun with her role. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, part of that, I think it's probably because of the characters sure. they're playing to an extent. She does have, you're right, there, there's a forcefulness to her here that I don't think we've seen very much before. And I did like the opportunity it gave her to to really pursue that and and live through that in the performance. There's another, speaking of allowing scenes to breathe, sort of the reveal. When we do first meet her, that's a really, really long one. And I I feel like, to some extent, it hit us with the reveal of her character and then stretched it out a little bit farther than we needed in terms of the particular gruffness she was going to have. It just kept giving her more opportunities to exhibit that. And we kind of had gotten the point. And I don't know if this it struck you this way. I'd say that's maybe a fair way to characterize the movie in general. I, I felt a little bit that once I understood what the Zellners were doing, not just with the tweaking of tropes, but also reversing the gender roles and mm-hmm. how that was going to affect her character, it felt a little bit like playing, stringing out that joke till the end of the film. And I don't know if once I got that, there was much more for me to grab onto. Yeah, if I can be brutally honest, this film was about a half an hour too long. I appreciate the the way they played with the structure and that it doesn't have a conventional, they're on a journey and then they reach the journey, the end point, and that's the end of the film. It doesn't have that's that true. kind of structure. And I appreciate that. But after the big reveal that you were talking about, there's a lot of movie after that. And once you have had that big reveal, it's all kind of downhill from there. And you're right that they just take these little incidents and spread them out and spread them out and spread them out in ways where you're kind of by about the hour and a half mark. I was like, OK, I get the point. One of the things I did admire throughout, and, and I'd agree it does sort of uh, – string us along towards the end there. But even through that ending is something you would expect from a Western Mm -hmm. that they don't tweak except to a really good job of it. And that's the landscape cinematography. It's by Adam Stone here. And there's a lot of care you can tell in choosing the settings for each of these significant scenes. Once Samuel and the parson leave the town and start heading out into the wilderness, really just luxuriating in that the landscapes that they're in and and the beautiful nature that we find. And of course, as Westerns do, kind of juxtapositioning that beauty with the incivility of of the characters, the human beings tramping their way through it. So I think that was definitely a highlight of the film. Yeah, I thought the cinematography was beautiful. And one thing that I found kind of refreshing is that it's, I believe it's in California, is that where it takes place? I'm not sure. I don't remember for sure. Though there's an interesting thing where he arrives on a boat. That's what made me think it was California. Yeah, that makes sense. Because normally in Westerns, when you have these like big stunning vistas, it is the it's the Southwest desert of like Arizona or New Mexico. And this showed a sort of different 
aspect of the Old West that was equally beautiful, but not the same red rocks you usually see. And I really liked that. Yeah, maybe that's the way they do tweak the landscape cinematography. I forgot that when Samuel first arrives with Buttercup on this little rowboat, essentially, but he seems to be arriving on... On a gorgeous beach. Yeah, gorgeous beach. I I mean, if not the ocean, it's a huge body of water, and it is beautiful, and it is jarring to see that in a Western. It's interesting, as you describe it, that there are almost always characters who are very land-bounded by that vastness, right? Mm -hmm. And here we have a sense of Samuel coming from another place and having... He even finds the parson... When he first comes across him, he's down by the beach, too. So the implication is that this town is near the beach. So maybe you're right about California. And that does definitely add sort of a wrinkle that's interesting to the film. Well, and also uh, another interesting wrinkle is I don't know if you saw this, but I saw kind of echoes of another very unconventional Western, which is Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man, which is Ah, also very, very dry. Absolutely. And also uh, tweaks tropes. But that one's in black and white. And this one has an added element of that gorgeous landscape photography we were talking about. That's right. Yeah, I think the tone it shares very much in common with Dead Man. Maybe not. And maybe that's a good point of what I felt was a little bit missing here is sort of the existential layers at work underneath Dead Man. Um, I didn't get that here as much as I got the joke they were going for. And it was funny. It was good. I appreciated it, but didn't find much more beyond that. I think probably at this point we can jump into some spoilers, but for listeners who don't want to have anything revealed, maybe take a moment to pause, return in a little bit. Uh, We will note that Damsel is currently playing in limited release. If you've seen it and agree or disagree with our takes, please let us know. You can send us an email at feedback at filmspotting.net. What are you doing? That's your wedding present. The miniature horse, the name to Burscotch. After one of your favorite candies. I know whorehound's your all-time favorite. That doesn't seem suitable, pet name. I just want to pick the one that sounded the best. I didn't want a wedding gift. But I just wanted to pick something special and personalized. Just to show you how I feel about you. You always said the miniature horse was the cutest, most beautiful critters you've ever seen. I never said that. Y- yes, you did. I never said that. Yes, you did. You said it in St. Louis. I never said anything like that. At most, I said they were interesting looking. What? Stop putting words in my mouth. Oh, ma'am, ma'am, please listen to me. Okay, Katie, so when that twist at the mm-hmm. midway point is revealed, it takes things, I think as we both said, we expected something of that sort to happen. Yeah. But nothing this extreme. Maybe do you want to, for listeners who haven't seen it and don't mind being spoiled, do you want to kind of just lay that out for them so they know what we're going to get into? Oh, sure. Absolutely. So when Samuel and the parson are going to get Penelope, Samuel tells the parson that she's been kidnapped by these bad men, which, you know, adds, which is another classic damsel in distress, thus the title, right? And then when they arrive, uh, they see a man come out of the cabin and the parson freaks out and shoots him. And so... In most films, they'd be rescuing her, you know, but then we find out that Samuel is not being forthright at all. And Penelope is living with this man willingly. He's happily. Her, happily. They're in love. Samuel has basically been a creepy guy who won't take no from an answer for her for a very long time and has followed her all the way here to make yet another round of unwanted advances on her. And she's just like, are you kidding me? You again. <laughs> yeah, it takes, it's like suddenly becomes this stalker film yes. a little bit. Yes, like, like, he becomes a bad guy. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I do like, I mentioned how that sequence goes on for a long time, but in the 
immediate wake of the reveal, I do like how modern it plays. You know, it, it does play as a woman who had a bad experience with a man that will now not leave her alone, whether it's on social media or just mm-hmm. trailing her in the neighborhood or whatever it is. Uh, here's a woman who's having the same exact experience. And even though she goes across this vast wilderness to escape him, mm-hmm. he shows up. There's something comic about it, but there's something scary yeah. about it. I mean, Samuel's not really been, as we talked about, an intimidating figure in this film until this point. Well, I thought it was an interesting commentary on the idea of the nice guy, right? That's something you hear talked about, you know, when you talk about sexual harassment and you talk about with the Time's Up stuff that has been happening lately and the Me Too movement and all that stuff. I found this movie more timely in that sense than I was expecting to. Okay. I knew there would be an inversion, but adding the element of him being kind of a long-time unwanted suitor of hers gave it an extra layer of timeliness, which I actually quite liked. I actually wrote a line down that she says, Samuel says, you gave me mixed signals. And Penelope says, I gave you no signals. Yeah. Which was very uh, He wanted them to be mixed. Right. But she's saying is no, I was very clear. And I think that's what I do like about the forcefulness of Vasakovska's mm. performance, the way she holds the gun, the way she even sits in the chair at one point once she's taken control of the situation. And at this at this point, it's just the person who's left. We should get into why. But she's she's very clear about her intentions. And that tells us that this is the way she has this is who she is. So there's mm-hmm. no doubt that she had been clear with Samuel before. Yeah. And it was his his fantasy. Well, yeah. And he set himself up as the white knight, the nice guy who's going to come and save her, but she doesn't want to be saved. Not only does she not need it, she doesn't want it either. She just told him to go away and he is not taking it for an answer. Yeah. So there's a there's a double layer to that as well. So do you think this would have been stronger? You've talked about how mm-hmm. you appreciated Pattinson's performance and it takes a shocking turn. The performance does too. But another reveal here, another spoiler when it's clear to him that she is going to have none of it, he goes into the outhouse and shoots himself, and he's dead. Do you think the film would have benefited from keeping him around, or was it necessary for this game the Zellners are playing of first half is going to have this inverted cowboy depiction, second half is going to have this inverted damsel depiction? I think it actually would have been detrimental to the film to keep him around because him dying shortly after we find out that he is not who we said he is sort of underlines him as a villainous figure. If we had kept him around and he kept being like, you know, goofy with the gold tooth and the funny body language and everything, that might have actually undermined the idea that he's actually the villain in this scenario. Yeah, that's fair. That makes sense. It is It is shocking, though, first off, because he's a star. And mm-hmm. You just don't expect like a psycho moment these days, which which you get. But yeah, I think you're probably right. In order for it to have that um, sort of subversiveness that they're clearly going for, and that I think it does have to a fair degree, it needs to just uh, get rid of him entirely. Yeah, and I really enjoyed the extended sort of middle reveal scene. I thought that was really cool. Um, it's just and, – and that scene did need the room to breathe that they gave it. But then I asked myself, where do they go from here? And the answer was kind of nowhere in particular, <laughs> which is why ultimately the film wasn't wholly satisfying for me. Yeah, I think I had a very similar experience. They set themselves up for a now what – situation that there isn't really the payoff for. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Damsel is currently playing in limited release. Again, if you've seen it and agree or disagree, let us know at feedback at filmspotting.net. 
So not only was Katie kind enough to review Damsel and play along with this week's top five, Women in Westerns, she's also brave enough to play Massacre Theater. Ooh, here we go. Her film spotting acting debut is next. Stay with us. You are the only one that I can rest my head upon. No sense of weightlessness, the breath is falling from my chest. And I will spend a lifetime playing just really need a job. 40 on two. This is telemarketing. Stick to the script. Hey, hello. Uh, Mr. Davison, cash the screen here. Sorry to bust. Let me give you a tip. You want to make some money here? Use your white voice. My white voice? I'm not talking about Will Smith's wife. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer. This is Langston from Regal View. For the record, I am using my white voice. (laughs) That's the trailer for the much-buzzed-about new film, Sorry to Bother You, the directing debut from Chicago native Boots Riley. It's set in an alternate reality, Oakland, California, stars Lakeith Stanfield as a telemarketer who discovers a secret key to success referenced in that clip you heard which is when things get really weird. And having seen this about a week or two ago now, I'm going to add things get really, really, really weird. I won't spoil it for you either, Katie, because I understand you're seeing it I'm in seeing about it a week. next week. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm, I'll just I'm leave very it. much looking forward to it. I'll just leave it there, but prepare yourself for weirdness. Tessa Thompson and Army Hammer also star. The film got raves at this year's Sundance. It's been much anticipated since then. Finally makes it to Chicago and elsewhere on July 6th. Sorry to Bother You is the film that Adam and the Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips will review. Not next week. We are taking our customary Fourth of July week off here on the show, but they will be back after that. I think Fourth of July is when Adam usually goes back to Iowa and plays Bon Jovi covers with his high school band. Longtime listeners will know that I am not making this up. Okay, question. Yes. A rock band or a marching band? What kind of band are we talking about? Oh my goodness. If Adam was in a marching band reunited with his high school marching (laughs) band friends to do covers of Bon Jovi songs, I would be in Iowa next week. (laughs) I I would forego my European vacation to go to Iowa. (laughs) No, this this is a rock band that he's in. I've not had the pleasure to see them perform yet. One of these days I'm going to do it. I am going to catch this because I think it would be a lot of fun. From what I hear, they are pretty good. So Adam will be off doing that next week when he returns with Michael Phillips, it will be the review of Sorry to Bother You. They might also have a review of Leave No Trace, the new film from writer-director Deborah Granick of Winter's Bone, or possibly they'll do a top five. All of that is still up in the air. If you have any thoughts or suggestions for a Sorry to Bother You related top five, please do send them to feedback at filmspotting.net, or you can leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. 
It's not a top five, but I will say that Lakeith Stanfield's Twitter account is fantastic. He's oh, one yeah? of my favorite people on Twitter. I will so have to check, check that out. out on there. <laughs> yeah, I have not followed him yet. Thanks for the tip. Another tip for our listeners is to go to filmspotting.net slash events. That's where you can find advanced screening and run of engagement passes. A very special event coming up in this arena right now passes to a Friday, July 13th screening of the second episode of HBO's Sharp Objects that stars Amy Adams. This is based on a 2006 debut novel from Chicago author Gillian Flynn. She wrote Gone Girl, of course. There's going to be a post-screening Q&A on Friday, July 13th, featuring Sharp Objects ensemble member Chris Messina and Flynn herself. Best of all, it's hosted by Adam. I'm not going to be there, but Adam will. So we'd love to see some film spotting listeners come out and support that event. Again, you can find more information by visiting filmspotting.net slash events. So I can't be there because I will be on my way home from the aforementioned European vacation, including a stop in Oslo going to the motherland. And yes, we are going to try to pull off a film spotting Oslo meetup. Heard cool. from a handful of listeners who live in that city or nearby, and they want to get together. So we're going to try to do it Monday, July 2, probably later that evening. Should be a lot of fun. You'll probably get to meet a few members of the Larson family as well, because this is a bit of a reunion trip. I am traveling with a lot of extended family members. We'll see if we can convince some of them to come out as well. We do still need to nail down the exact time and place. Once we do that, we will also put that up at filmspotting.net slash events. Okay, let's get to a little poll business before okay. Massacre I just Theater. want to ask you about your European vacation, <laughs> but we can talk about that off mic. Okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll fill you in. I will say, because some listeners might wonder, Amsterdam is part of the trip, and unfortunately we did hear from one person who said they might be able to make it there, but in terms of numbers, Oslo won out, so we're going to make it in Oslo. But yeah, I can't wait for that trip. All right, film spotting poll. Right now, we are asking you, what is the best performance of 2018 so far? And we gave you these options. Emily Blunt in A Quiet Place, Tony Collette in Hereditary, Hugh Grant in Paddington 2, Ethan Hawke in First Reformed, Brady Jandro in The Rider, Michael B. Jordan in Black Panther, and Charlize Theron in Tully. We do have an other category. I hear that Collette. Maybe a bit surprisingly, since Hereditary hasn't done huge business, she has the early lead. Ethan Hawke, this not so surprising, is not far behind. He is a show favorite. Looking at those options, Katie, anybody jump out at you as someone who's a clear front runner? Are there a couple names here you feel like you need to catch up with? Well, I'm not surprised at all that Tony Collette is leading because she's just fantastic in Hereditary. And Alex Wolf, who plays the son, he also turns in a really great performance in that film. He's really shaping up to be a fine actor. I haven't seen The Writer yet. That's one that I missed and I'm very, very excited about. I would also put in here, uh, You Were Never Really Here. Walking Phoenix puts in a good performance in that film, I thought. Yeah, definitely another option that we mentioned for sure. So yeah. Yeah, good. And Alex Wolf, well worth considering in the other category. So you still have time to vote in this poll. We would also love it if you left a comment. And if you do that, please do let us know where you're listening from. You can do your voting at filmspotting.net. All right. It is time for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. All alone, my pet. Why, why, yes, I am. But they 
The literal men are not here? No, they're not. Naked mm. 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 <laughs> pies. Yes, gooseberry pies. It's apple pies that make the men folks' mouths water. That's Lucille Laverne as The Witch and Adriana Casalodi as Snow White in 1937, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. That massacre was part of episode 685, which featured our review of Incredibles 2 and our top five Pixar performances. I also shared some thoughts on Hereditary and Ocean's 8, which provided for a lot of potential connections with that massacre theater scene. And we did indeed hear from listeners who did pick up on some of those. Hannah Iafrati from Boston, Massachusetts, though she notes she's in Chicago during the school year, says, This is my first time ever, ever submitting to massacre theater, which means I'm probably in good and plentiful company. But I know this was 100% 1937 Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. I'd like to thank your wonderful acting, my allergy to apples. Oh, man, I didn't know that was a thing. And childhood brought up exclusively on Disney classics. The obvious connections between the movie and Incredibles 2 are that they are both made by Disney and star female leads and female villains. And these leads both represent the female ideal of their day. For Snow White, this means meekness, beauty, and a passion for household chores. (laughs) (laughs) Who finds a home in the woods and their first thought is, I should clean this. Elastigirl, on the other hand, is a modern woman who is trying to balance it all, a deep love of her children and a passion for her job, planning and flexibility, concern and excitement. She may not be a princess, but she is a queen. Nice pun there with flexibility, Hannah. (laughs) Exactly. We've also had a response from Rose Lewis in Elk Grove Village, formerly Palatine, formerly Naperville, currently Elk Grove Village. Uh, Rose found a couple other connections to last week's show in that there were eight main characters. Snow Wife and the Seven Dwarves is eight, and then Ocean's eight. Also eight characters. I don't know, Rose. We usually don't like to involve math in the show, but okay, whatever. (laughs) And then the other connection that Rose saw was uh, men doing the voices of female characters, uh, which was you you guys doing Snow White and the Evil Queen. And The Incredibles 2 has Brad Bird playing the character of Edna Mode. I like that one. Very nice. All right. Bev Burnaman from Northbrook, Illinois, said another tie-in is that Snow White was a game changer for animation cinema in 1937. The full-length feature with detailed characters Character development was innovative for the time. Pixar Studios is also a game changer in the field of animation. The look and feel of a Pixar picture is unlike anything that came before it. Another tie-in Bev goes on would be the voice performances. As you pointed out, the Pixar voice performances are always particularly good and nuanced. The voice acting in Snow White is 95% wonderful. For instance, the queen's voice as the queen is sharply contrasted with the old hag who entices Snow White with the apple. The other 5%, however, is Snow White's singing voice, or should I say warble? Granted that it was an accepted singing style for young women at the time, but yikes, is it ear bleed material to the modern ear. With a smile and a Yeah, Bev makes a point, yeah, whenever you watch a film from the 30s or 40s that has a a scene with a woman singing in it, there's always a good chance that you're going to get this. That was pretty common at the time. (laughs) Wow. If that was your Massacre Theater audition, you have got the part. Very nice, Katie. Very nice. Thank you. Bev goes on, poor Adriana Casalodi, who voiced Snow White, didn't have much of a career after that. I found out from Wikipedia that she was the Wherefore Art Thou Romeo voice in the Tin Man song in Wizard of Oz, and she sang in the bar in It's a Wonderful Life. And now, the intellectual property law geeky tie-in. 
Walt Disney patented the multiplane camera, which was used for the forest sequences in Snow White. Pixar also holds a bunch of patents, one of which is a circular scratch shader that uses computer animation to create high-resolution, multi-directional textures. I think I only know what about half of that meant, but Bev, Mm -hmm. I'll take your word for it and thank you for the many, many connections. All right, we did get many, many entries as well. So, Katie, if you would do the honors of reaching into the film spotting hat and pulling out this week's winner. Who you got? This week's winner is Chris George of Chicago. Congratulations, Chris. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. Dracula requires presence. It, it's all in the eyes and the voice and the head. That's right. That's right. You seem a little agitated. You want to go outside and get some air? I'm ready now. Roll the camera. So, Katie, we already know you can sing like Snow White. Uh, thank you for that. This might be a bit of a different challenge here. A bit, let's let's say, a bit of a lower register. Now, when we met to talk about you coming on the show, and I was describing Massacre Theater and so forth, you said, "Don't tell me what scene it's going to be. Mm-hmm. I just I just want to come in the studio." And I'll just do whatever the scene happens to be. Mm-hmm. Are you are you feeling confident in that approach now that you've had one listen of the scene? I mean, it's called massacre theater. So if I massacre it, then I'm succeeding at the challenge. I so I love I feel pretty okay about that. Love your attitude. Let's get right into it. You are gonna start us off, so I will give you the action. And action. Who the hell are you? And where did you get that goddamn clown suit? Cleveland? Uh Actually, yes, sir. I did uh, get it in Cleveland. What the hell are you doing in my office? Well, I I, I, I came to talk about my job. The only job you're going to get in here is pushing up daisies from a pine box. Now get out. Thank you very much, sir. And <laughs> scene. <laughs> Nicely done. I, y- you, you dug deep, got down for that low <laughs> register, and it came across. You may have been nipping some whiskey as well before we got going. I think that helped too. So, that was sober. That was purely sober. Okay. All right. right. Whatever you say. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline for this one, you've got some time here. It's Monday, July 16th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks to get official massacre theater rules visit filmspotting.net. What kind of woman are you? How can you leave him like this? Does the son of guns frighten you that much? No, Mrs. Ramirez. I've heard guns. My father and my brother were killed by guns. They were on the right side, but that didn't help them any when the shooting started. My brother was 19. I watched him die. That's when I became a Quaker. I don't care who's right or who's wrong. There's got to be some better way for people to live. That's Grace Kelly and Cady Hurado in High Noon. As iconic as Gary Cooper is in that classic Western, Kelly and Hurado are just as memorable, as well as key players in the film's plot. And that's as good of a clip as any to bring us into this week's film spotting top five, which is Women in Westerns. Now, Katie, when we first brought this up behind the scenes, thinking about it as a possible tie-in with Damsel, I think... 
there was a bit of concern that maybe there won't be enough characters to choose from. The Western is thought of as such a manly genre, uh, and it has some of those iconic performances like Cooper that uh, we thought, well, are we going to only have, you know, the same five to ten to pick from? Well, my experience was that I was overwhelmed with options. And I think what I mostly discovered is I have not seen enough Westerns. <laughs> so I did manage to catch up with two titles that seemed crucial to consider and I know had a good shot at making your list. Yeah. You seem to be on board right away with this idea. So how did it go once you started to dig in? Did you find it was hard to choose? Did you have to come up with any criteria to narrow down your list? Well, for me, actually, something that I ended up catching up on a lot of films over the weekend for was there were certain actresses who I knew from their roles in Westerns, but I was like, oh, which movie should I feature? Okay. So I ended up watching a few different uh, movies with one of the actresses who appears on my list over the weekend. Interesting. Okay. You did your homework. I love it. (laughs) Where did you end up going with then in your number five spot? My number five spot, I chose to spotlight Jennifer Jason Lee from The Hateful Eight. Her performance in that film is just so mean. She's such a mean character. And and a lot of, you know, going back to the beginning of the Western genre, when you have women in there, a lot of times it'll be kind of a Smurfette situation where there's one woman. And this movie is no exception. That's true. Yep, <laughs> She's the yep. only female member of the Hateful Eight. And often in these films, you know, the women have to be tough to be on the level of the men. And these are really nasty men, and she's a really nasty woman. And what you got to say about all this? What do I got to say about John Reese Ravens? Absolutely right. Me and one of them fellows is in cahoots. We're just waiting for everybody to go sleep. That's what we're gonna kill y'all. So that's my number five. That is accurate. Now, Katie, things were going so well. We pretty much agreed on Damsel and Massacre Theater was fun. Then you had to go and pick a film that Adam and I had probably one of our most intense disagreements over, The Hateful Eight. Uh, (laughs) And I was not on the pro side of that one. And I did have problems with this character. I didn't have problems with the performance. Mm -hmm. I think Jennifer Jason Leigh... It's a really good performance. Yeah, she's really strong in it. And I remember a lot of hand-wringing over how to take those scenes of her getting punched in the face over and over and over. Mm -hmm. And I just fell on the side of as much as she worked to make that work in the film as an actor. And I think she really does. And we might talk about this with some other picks on our list too, I think, where the material, the the women have to work and do their own thing against the material. Mm -hmm. I kind of felt like that was going on a little bit here where there was just too much glee and comedy being wrung out of those scenes of her, of her getting, getting hit for me to be comfortable. But do you do you remember, I don't know how long ago it's been when you saw it, how those particular scenes struck you? Obviously, it wasn't a huge bother or you wouldn't have right. enjoyed the character so much. Well, but. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw you a little bit of a curveball here. Okay. I kind of picked her despite the movie. I think it's my least favorite Tarantino movie. Interesting. By a bit. By, All right. by a bit. You, when I saw I, it. I'm glad again that, that I asked you to yeah. guest host. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but when I watched it, it was wasn't her getting punched in the face that bothered me as much because I was like, oh, he's doing trying to do a slapstick thing, but he's Quentin Tarantino, so it comes off as kind of wrong. Okay. I that's how I 
interpreted that. It was actually Samuel L. Jackson's monologue right before the intermission that I was like, I don't know how much more I could do. Interesting. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So for you, Daisy, though, a highlight and number five. And I thought she just did a great performance in it. And it's an interesting, like, modern example of the kind of character that comes up pretty much my entire list is some variation on this character, but it's a really hard bitten modern version of it. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. All right. Well, when I thought about this list, I also saw a through line, something they all shared, and that's, and I think this applies to Daisy, all of the women on my list are survivors, okay, in one way or another, and they sort of have to be, to be in this genre. I mean, they've faced the life and death challenges that come with living in the wild, wild west, but then pile on top of that, that they've had to endure dismissal or outright abuse of sexism that this culture, it's ingrained in these cultures. Yeah. And being the only woman. And yes, as you said, in that case, often being the only woman in the cast. So given all that, um, they manage to survive, but also survive with grit or with resilience or with resistance in some cases. So at number five, I think this character you might put in the resilience category, maybe. It's Mrs. Miller, played by Julie Christie mm-hmm. in McCabe and Mrs. Mm-hmm. Miller. Listen, Mr. McCabe, I'm a whore and I know an awful lot about whorehouses. Well, I know that if you had a house up here, you'd stand and make yourself a lot of money. Now, this is all you've got to do, put up the money for the house. I'll do all the rest. I'll look after the girls, the business, the expenses, the, the running, the furnishing, everything. And I'll pay you back any money you put in the house as you won't lose nothing. And we'll make it 50-50. Uh, excuse me, you know I already got a whorehouse operating. Ah, you can't call them crib cows, whores. I'm talking about a proper sporting house with class girls and clean linen and a proper hygiene. If that movie is meant to be an emasculation of the Western genre, and I, I think that's probably what Robert Altman is going for here, then Julie Christie's Mrs. Miller is is key to that working. She's a businesswoman who comes to the Pacific Northwest town of Presbyterian Church. I think it's around 1902. And she proposes opening a high-end brothel with a local gambling house owner named John McCabe, played by Warren Beatty. I love how Christie makes Mrs. Miller, she's refined, but she's not delicate. Mm-hmm. There's a, a moment where she blows her nose with vehemence. There's that scene where she's mm-hmm. polishing off a plate of food in seconds. So it's almost as if, I don't think you can say she brings feminine justice to this town, but she's, she certainly brings civilization, mm-hmm. at least, which is something. And in the process, I think she also, she undermines the manly grip on the town that exists and kind of recalibrates our view of the gender dynamics that are going on there. So think about later in the film when Mrs. Miller brings more prostitutes to town. They come in hard. They they come in kind of like Daisy, right? Smoking, swearing. The men are sheepishly eyeballing them from the corners, but the women... They're staring the men down because it's almost as if they see them as dollar signs, right? Yeah. They're the marks. Yeah. So my list starts in 1971 with Julie Christie in McCabe and Mrs. Miller. What do you got at number four, Katie? My number four is uh, one of my favorite filmmakers. Probably this actually was the very first thing that popped to mind when you brought up this genre. For okay. Me. It's Claudia Cardinale in Once Upon a Time in the West. And as the film opens, she plays a former prostitute who is moving to the West to marry a man who she kind of met over correspondence and become a wife and start over and start a new life. But while she's on her way to meet her new family, 
they all get murdered in a dispute over the land. She arrives, and instead of backing down to uh, all the men that are fighting over this land, she says, no, I'm, I'm the wife. This belongs to me. This is my land. And the source of the conflict is they want to build a railroad through the area, and so the land is very, very, very valuable. And she just refuses to back down. She, she came out west to start a new life, and she's not going to back down. Ma'am, it seems to me you ain't caught the idea. Of course I have. I'm here alone in the hands of a bandit who smelled money. If you want to, you can lay me over the table and amuse yourself. And even call in your men. Well, no woman ever died from that. When you're finished, all I'll need will be a tub of boiling water. And I'll be exactly what I was before. With just another filthy memory. Yeah, that and that refusal, that strength that she brings to the role is is definitely a hallmark. I love that element of the performance. I watched this over the weekend, had mm-hmm. not seen it before. You hinted it was a strong possibility, as you said, to mm-hmm. make your list, and I'd always wanted to see it. And man, you're right about the Leone Vistas and the composition within the frame yeah. and placing men at different depths of field. And that here's another prologue, another Western that has a prologue, right, of those henchmen at the station waiting for their quarry to arrive. Mm-hmm. I could have been happy with just that being the movie, even though they're yeah. just killing time, right? Yeah, just, the sound design in that oh, scene is just incredible. Yeah, the, the fly, incredible. the way the fly he captures. And the dripping water. The water. Yeah. yeah it's such great stuff. So really glad I saw it. I have to ask you, and I've been dying to ask you since I saw it, is what you make of the three, I think you could say, there are three times in the film where Mrs. McBain, the Cardinal character, mm-hmm. is threatened with rape. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, she's caught in this power struggle among a handful of men, including right. Henry Fonda's villain. Right. Um, Which is a reversal. Usually he played a good guy. And in exactly. this one, he plays oh, the man. bad guy. And, and Charles Bronson is the good guy. So it's kind of a role reversal for those two actors. Fonda is so despicable in this movie, He's too. He's terrifying. Yeah, he really, really is. But how did those scenes play with you? Because for me, they were almost another instance of the actor reclaiming what they can in a scene that the movie otherwise is trying to play a different way. They, they felt like te- like kind of gross teases in mm-hmm. a way, but Cardinale is, is making more of them. You know, she she's making way more of this role than I think it may be envisioned in some ways, or I am I reading that. that wrong? I agree with that. I think that I, I agree with that perhaps in the script that her part may have read as, you know, just sort of you need a third party to keep to make the story sufficiently, you know, complex. Mm-hmm. And I think that she did bring more to it just through her, she has a really strong stance. Like she stands and she looks out over the land and you just see a real strength in her face and the way she carries herself. Yeah. And it's also very elegant. I in terms of rape scenes, unfortunately, that sort of thing is very common as a plot device in 60s and 70s films. It's true. You know, and uh, Westerns, spaghetti Westerns like that were a form of exploitation film, and it's very common in exploitation film. I don't like it, but I'm not going to completely discount this genre that I otherwise enjoy because yeah. of something that I don't Yeah, no, and I, I don't I, like and is very outdated. For sure, and I appreciate bringing that sort of perspective to it. And in a way, by having 
play with three different men in three different ways. It is subverting that expectation Mm -hmm. in a sense because we clearly get us – that's where we get the idea of how awful the Havanda character is, right? Right. Is in that sequence with her. I like what you said about how she carries herself too. I think another – interesting motif in this movie are the scenes of her looking at herself in a mirror and reassessing, Mm -hmm. kind of staring herself down and reassessing who do I need to play in this next development of the plot? Not the not the actor, but Mrs. McBain doing this as right. a character, right? Like, who do I have to be to survive this next phase of this story? And she kind of puts herself in that place by looking at the mirror in those scenes. Yeah, and she is another survivor, and I think that she's a very savvy character and that she has made her living off of her looks in various forms throughout her life. And now she has an opportunity to be free from that, but also these men are complicating the situation where she says, oh, well, I might have to use this thing that I've always used to survive again, (laughs) which is sort of the tragedy of her character that she's looking for a fresh start and the men there aren't letting her. Still can't quite escape that. That's true. All right. My number four, well, we've already heard from her at the top of the show. It's Maddie Ross, played by Haley Steinfeld in True Grit. This spring, I gave a talk at a college in Iowa where we broke down a number of scenes from the Coen Brothers 2010 remake of the John Wayne Western. And I was stunned anew by Steinfeld's breakout performance here, playing this teen girl who hires a marshal to avenge her father's murder. It struck me as, you know, she's she's sort of playing house, but she's playing the dad part, right? Yeah. That's, that's what she's better suited for. Uh, so as I watched it, I, I wasn't just impressed by her mastery of the Coens' florid, funny language mm-hmm. and dialogue, or even really the fact that she held her own in her scenes with Jeff Bridges. That's the major thing about this film for me and her performance yeah, is how well she holds her own next to Jeff Bridges. In it's a really number remarkable. of scenes and crucial yeah. ones, right? So all that stuff, you know, I, I did remember from before, but really what struck me this time was the way Steinfeld managed to capture Maddie's grown-up precociousness and childlike vulnerability simultaneously. And and a lot of times she does this in a single moment. This is very much a movie about the moral righteousness that a child can have right alongside a naivete about the world. And Steinfeld manages to embody both of those things. I I think Mm -hmm. one moment where you see that is the scene where she confronts her quarry, Tom Chaney, played by Josh Brolin. Yeah. Your name is Maddie. But you're little Maddie the bookkeeper. Isn't that something? Yes, and I know you, Tom Cheney. What are you doing out here? Came to fetch some water. Oh, then what are you doing in these mountains here? Well, I have not been formally deputized, but I'm acting as an agent for Marshal Reuben Cochran and Judge Parker's court. I have come to take you back to Fort Smith. Well, I will not go. How do you like that? But there's a posse of officers up there who will force you to go. Well, that is interesting news. And how many is up there? Right around 50. And they're all well-armed and they mean business. What I want you to do now is come on across the creek and walk in front of me up that hill. I think I will oblige the officers to come after me. But if you refuse to go, I'll have to shoot you. Now, in the 1969 original, Kim Darby is much broader as Maddie. And I do think she and John Wayne, they balance each other out nicely. But it's nothing like what Steinfeld brings to the part in the Coens film. So. Yeah, the Coens are kind of playing with the dynamic there a little bit by changing the nature of the two characters. You know, like Haley Steinfeld's character is a little more, I guess, assertive or yeah, confident. Fair. And Jeff Bridges is a little bit softer. He's the dude. He's not as swaggering. He's not as... He's a cool uncle instead of a stern father. 
I like John Wayne yeah. is very much a stern yeah. dad. Yep. And uh, Jeff Hedges is very much a cool uncle. So they played with the dynamic a little bit. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So we're at our number three picks. What did you have in that spot, Katie? Oh, my number three pick is one. This is the actress who I watched several of her movies to decide which one I was going to feature. And that is Barbara Stanwyck in The Furies. Beat you here again. <laughs> Yeah, it's been a long time since we raced here. I always did get here first, didn't I? You always did get here first, didn't you? Juan Herrera, you let me win. You always did, every time. The one time I didn't let you. You scratch blood. <laughs> it's the Fury's brand on you, all right? No, Vance. Not the Fury's. Yours. No difference. This is a more obscure film. Criterion Collection put out a DVD a while ago, but I believe it went out of print and it's not on their streaming service Filmstruck right now. But you can still get the DVD and you can actually watch a pretty good quality of the film on YouTube since it's sort of currently in a limbo rights-wise. Okay. It was made in 1950. Anthony Mann's a director. And another Barbara Stanwyck film that gets brought up a lot as a great performance from her as 40 Guns, a Sam Fuller movie. But I like the Furies. I like her character in the Furies. She plays the an heiress to a ranch, and her father is very much sort of the, you know, speaking of the patriarchal father figure, mm-hmm. he is very much a patriarchal father figure. He's a huge landowner. And the interesting thing is she has a brother in the film, Barbara Stanwyck's character, but it's never really a source of tension between her and her brother who's going to grow up to run the ranch, which is called the Furies. It's just assumed that she is going to do it. Huh. She is the heir apparent. She is her father's favorite. She rides. She does. She knows about business. She is involved in every aspect of running the ranch. So it's sort of a family saga, which turns into a film noir in a Western setting. So basically, there's conflict between Barbara Stanwyck's character and her father over he wants to eject what he calls squatters from the land, but they're the Mexican people who have been living there since long before any white people arrived. And he keeps threatening to evict them from the land, but she is friends with the son of one of the Mexican families that lives on the land. And so she's conflicted with her father. She says, let them stay. We have all this land. Why are you kicking them out? And he kicks them out. And so she cuts ties with her family. And she kind of comes up with a scheme to get the furies for herself in a very film noir sort of underhanded plot kind of way. So this is one that I had on my list to catch up with, did not see it before, and just managed to catch a couple of scenes Mm -hmm. today. Wow. Stanwyck is dangerous in this thing. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but not in an overtly aggressive, like swaggering tough gal kind of way. Just in a very, I mean, in a really, her, really, her character is kind of entitled. She's an heiress, but she's not bratty. She's just very confident. She does throw scissors at one point. Well, I, <laughs> I mean, that's an evil stepmother who totally deserved it. <laughs> okay, well. Maybe, maybe I was missing that context, but <laughs> there's also there's also a moment I saw where she pulls the Derringer on Wendell Corey and, mm-hmm. and kind of fires over his shoulder. And what yeah. I liked about that moment, again, without having much context She's to it, is that... very confident with firearms, and it's never yeah, you could questioned tell. in the context of the film. Okay. It's never questioned in the sense that it's 
weird in this in this family in this world for her to be riding horses and shooting guns and handling the books for the business it's never it's not weird in the family and it's not weird in the context of the film it's not a novelty she does it very naturally sounds very cool i might have to watch the whole thing sometime yeah all right at my number three spot i went with well we also heard a little bit of this earlier in the show, thanks to you, Katie, Lily Von Stupp, Madeline Kahn <laughs> in Blazing Saddles. I tried. <laughs> she only has a few significant scenes in Mel Brooks' 1974 comic masterpiece, so I think it's telling how much she made of them because she came up a lot on social media when I asked listeners mm-hmm. who I should consider for this list. I totally agree with them. I've got her at number three. Lily Von Stupp is the showgirl hired by Harvey Korman's corrupt political boss to seduce and deceive the hero here, played by Cleavon Little. And her signature moment is that song, I'm Tired, mm-hmm. written by Brooks, of course. <laughs> it has the swing of a striptease, but lyrics that are bemoaning the burden of being a sex object. Here I stand, the goddess of desire. Set men on fire. I have this power. Morning, noon, and night, it's drink and dancing. Some quick romancing. And then a shower. <laughs> Stage door Johnny's constantly surround me. They always hound me with one request. Who can satisfy their lustful habit? I'm not a rabbit. I need some rest. I'm tired. Khan delivers it with a hilarious combination of obligatory titillation and just this comic exhaustion. I, I love how she even yeah. nods off at one point. Uh-huh. It really is a tour de force and earned her a rare Oscar nomination for a comic yeah, for a performance. Yeah. yeah. How about that? I love it when that happens. She's, and I do love this performance. She's also in Young Frankenstein, isn't she? Yes, yeah, she is. I love her As in Young Frankenstein. The fact that Brooks pulled those two films off so closely together is still one of the mind-boggling accomplishments in cinema, I would say. Yeah, totally. Well, okay, so for my number two pick, I picked one that we were both very big on, and then you very generously gave it to me, which is Angie Dickinson as Feathers in Rio Bravo. This yes, is this kind of hurt to have to leave off my list. I agree. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it. She's very high on my list. So I really, I find Rio Bravo just so charming. You were talking about singing cowboys earlier and how they kind of goof on it and damsel. Yeah. But this movie has such a wonderful singing oh, cowboy scene yeah. in it. Just Let's take wonderful. it straight faced. It's beautiful. It's perfect. I love it. Yeah. And it's a Howard Hawks film. Howard Hawks, as I'm sure everyone who listens to your podcast knows, was kind of the master of doing all these different genres and succeeding in all of them. But one constant through all his films is the Hawksian woman uh, who is a, you know, a strong female character, for lack of a better term, but a very sophisticated, witty variant on that. Witty. That's the key, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And... I would call Feathers a Hoxian woman. Absolutely. And and you were talking about uh, John Wayne Mm -hmm. in True Grit and kind of how he presented himself in that film. And I think here what I love about Angie Dickinson is how she kind of 
undermines Wayne a little bit. You know, he he's, does. Yeah. He's so sturdy and stolid, and that works for much of the film, except for the scenes with her, he, where she, she makes him uncomfortable. Well, she knows exactly how to play him. She knows exactly how to take a very stoic man like that and get him to loosen up. Yeah, and which is through teasing him. Through, through teasing him, and <laughs> one of the great lines, uh, which is also a tease, is after his uninspired kiss. Right? It's better when two people do it. You <laughs> yeah. know, I mean, that's just and and his his reaction to to all of that. His reaction to her in general. She makes him unsteady on his feet, which you don't see often mm-hmm. with John Wayne. But I do love how that it, dynamic is. It's very here. romantic, honestly. Yeah, I, I think, think Real Railroad is a romantic movie. I would agree, and I normally don't think of John Wayne in that way but hey it's Angie Dickinson Angie, yes. it's the way she interacts with him that makes it that way because she it's pulls it off that's true it's affectionate yeah. teasing what I had to go through put on these tights ask a lot of questions start to walk out I thought you were never going to say it say what that you loved me I said I'd arrest you it means the same thing you know that you just won't say it Oh, we're different. I'll have to get used to you. Me, I just talk all the time. You most certainly do. You'll get used to that. You'll have to. Either that or start talking, too. Yeah, it's a great performance. I'm glad it's on your list. At number two, well, I found one that I'm about as equally happy with, and it's a little more recent. It's Emily Tetherow, Michelle Williams in Meek's Cutoff. Ah, this is a good one. Some people consider, I don't know what you think, Katie, they consider Kelly Reichert's 2010 period drama to be a straight-out feminist Western, Mm -hmm. which I can see. But a lot of times, I think of it more of just being a holistic one because she's really just giving the women characters as much screen time and as much agency as the male characters. They Mm -hmm. they have as much of a voice. And it maybe feels more feminist because we don't always see that, especially in Westerns. Sure. But that's how this entire film is framed. Now... Williams Emily is married to Will Patton Solomon, and they're one of a handful of settlers who've lost their way in the Oregon wilderness. And I really love the egalitarian portrait of marriage we get here as well, because Emily and Solomon, they trust each other's counsel. They deliberate over things together, and they disagree in private, but then they do stand united before the others, before the Mm -hmm. rest of the group. So they're really true partners in this perilous endeavor that they've undertaken. In order for that to work, Williams is going to have to bring a necessary forcefulness Mm -hmm. to the screen, and she does it. She manages to do it while still – and here's where the holistic sense comes into play, and I think the historical sense. She manages to do it while still fulfilling the traditional gender role that this woman would have been in, Mm -hmm. okay? So she has – a firm sense of self, even while she's maybe boxed into this role. I think this does come through in one early scene where it's a tense scene with their guide. Bruce Greenwood plays Stephen Meek, kind of an untrustworthy character. Mm -hmm. And she challenges him here, but it's crucial that he's standing above her, sort of as the man, the leader, and she's sitting down knitting. Sometimes I get the sense you don't care for me much, Miss Tetherill. Oh, I have no feelings one way or the other, Mr. Meek. Yeah, that, that, that's just a kind way of saying you don't like me. I don't like where we are. So that's what you think, that we're lost? I'd say that seems about the right word for it. We're not lost. We're not lost, we're just finding our way. I certainly hope so. We're going to make it all right. Oh, you don't need to patronize me, Mr. Meek. Well, that, now, well, now I think you're flirting with me, man. You don't know much about women, do you, Stephen Meek? 
Well, that kind of speaks to what you said about it being a holistic film. It's definitely a naturalistic one. And I think Kelly Reichardt plays really well to something we addressed in our review of Damsel. Is She is really good at letting her scenes breathe, but not she knows just how long to let them breathe. <laughs> yeah. She's very, very good at that. Yeah, that's true. Maybe a, a little more discipline than what we see mm-hmm. in Damsel. So... I love Emily Tethero in Meek's Cutoff. I always think of her as the bonnet unafraid of beards. So I had to put her here at my number two spot. All right. We have made our way to our number one picks. I do know what yours is. Yes. And I'm very excited to hear what yes. you have to say about it. It is Joan Crawford and Johnny Guitar. We're talking about all these tough women, all these tough landowners who are telling the guys to pack it up and behave and just ruling their land. And Joan Crawford's character in this film runs a gambling house. She wears these amazing buttons. Like her style in it is an important part of the character. And it's also just really cool. Blazing bright primary color she's she's wearing, whether scarves or the shirts or matching the makeup, right? And her eyes as well. She'll wear, yeah, she'll wear these, she'll have a, she has a very masculine wide stance in the film and will wear cowboy boots and jeans and button up shirts with little bolo ties, but then, and has short styled curly hair, but then she wears bright red lipstick. Mm -hmm. And it really, it's just, I just kind of think of Johnny Guitar as the ultimate example of this kind of movie that we're discussing here. She's she's very iconic as a tough lady in film. I've never done a thing to hurt any of you. Don't make me do it now. You're nothing but a railroad tramp. You're not fit to live among decent people. You better get out of here while you can, you and your men. We're here to stay, Mr. McIvers. You'd better get used to that idea. We don't want you here. This was free country when I came. I'm not giving up a single foot of it. You don't hear so good. We don't want you here. You don't own the earth, not this part of it. You stay and you'll keep only enough of it to bury you in. I intend to be buried here in the 20th century. Well, and you know that right from the start, Mm -hmm. right? In the opening scene, some unruly visitors come into her saloon and she straps on a gun and stands at the top of the stairs and, and tells him, down there, I sell whiskey and cards. All you could buy up these stairs is a bullet in the head. Yeah. Now, which do you want? <laughs> and right after that, doesn't a guy throw a bottle of whiskey and she tells him he has to pay for it before he yes, can leave? Yes. It's in the same scene that yeah, happens. Which, scene, and yeah. she's calm and cool. She's like the, the woman with no name, except that she's also brazen enough to have a giant sign outside her saloon of her name. It's Vienna's, yeah, right? Vienna. Vienna's like her name, yeah. The brightest sign in town. So she's, yes, she, she should be the number one on anyone's list. <laughs> and also kind of rare for this era and for this style of Western in general, the Vienna's antagonist is also a woman played by Mercedes McCambridge. And what do you think of that performance? Because my sense watching this is, so Joan Crawford, this is an unnuanced way to put it, but she's known for going big, right? And she's mm-hmm. a master of it. She mm-hmm. makes that work. Yeah. Mercedes McCambridge as this woman in town who hates yeah, uh, Vienna. Em- just... Emma Small is her name. She's a townsperson who really just, she wants Vienna gone. She wants yes. the saloon gone. She wants it all gone. She 
goes 10 times bigger than Joan Crawford. Is that yeah, fair? No, that's totally fair. I think that uh, the way that Mercedes Cambridge plays the role of Emma is kind of typical of, more typical of acting during that period of film. For sure. And Joan Crawford's is more masterful than that. Yeah, I mean, it, it probably just comes down to the fact that Joan Crawford's one of the best of all time. And so, yeah. <laughs> so she has a little <laughs> better a little better handle on that register. And that's, that's a way to describe Johnny Guitar. I mean, mm-hmm. even... Uh, the film, and we should mention, I, I don't think we did, Nicholas Ray yeah, it's a film, Nicholas Ray even film. though the title is Johnny Guitar, as I said, like it only takes a few seconds for you to realize that it's Joan Crawford's movie. Mm-hmm. There's, there's one other scene that I want to highlight from this film, which plays into everything you've said about her, Katie, is once she's been threatened with being run out of town. Basically, mm-hmm. leave or we're coming after you. Yes. Her response is similar to what we see in Once Upon a Time in the West, where Mrs. McBain stands her ground. Mm-hmm. Well, not only does Vienna stand her ground, but when they come for her, she puts on this sweeping white dress, <laughs> which is very telling because... In contrast because, to her other outfit. In contrast to her other outfits, and I think also to fly in the face of Emma, who has hinted about her sordid past, right? Mm-hmm. So she puts on this pure white dress... Mm-hmm sits at her grand piano in the saloon and is playing. Ray pushes the camera in through the front door and she's just there as if, you know, again, she not only owns the saloon, but she owns the whole town. Yeah. And she's going to she's gonna call their bluff on actually pulling her out of this town. So it is fantastic pick, fantastic performance. Another one I was able to see for the first time thanks to this list and I'm it, so glad I did. It is on Amazon Prime if anyone's listening and you'd like to check it out. Go watch it right now. Okay, so I couldn't put Joan Crawford at my number one, which does kind of undermine my list, I admit, but Mm -hmm. I am still happy with who I do have there. It will be a familiar character and actor. We've talked about her before on the show, Jessie, played by Diane Salento in Ombre, the Paul Newman Western. Now, Adam had Salento on his list of top five Elmore Leonard characters on episode 457. He did admit that it was a bit of a cheat because her character isn't in the Leonard novel. I highlighted her when I named Ombre one of my top five movies of 1967. We did that on episode 644. Jessie is one of the passengers on the stagecoach that is ambushed by outlaws. She's a practical, plain-spoken boarding house operator who just tells it like it is. And maybe that's another quality that a lot of these characters do have in common. I've quoted my favorite line of hers before on the show, but this time I found a clip of it so you can hear it for yourself. I've been wedded and bedded and loved and let down. It hasn't always been nice. At least it's been natural. That line delivered in that voice that is the sound of survival right there. Yeah. Salento's performance, though, it's laid back but assured. And I think she takes it even beyond survival, which is why I have her at number one. I don't know who wrote those words, that line. It was probably not Leonard, given that she's not a character in the book. Maybe it was the husband and wife screenwriting team here of Irving Ravitch and Harriet Frank Jr. Maybe it was ad-libbed by Salento herself. I don't know, but even though those words are in a passive voice, so Jesse is describing those things as if they happened to her, right? Mm-hmm. Wedded, bedded. She still hits notes of agency somehow yeah. in the way she delivers it. So all of these things she talks about, they're partly choices she's made, a, a life that she's managed to live her way at least as much as a woman can do in a, in a culture like the Old West. And that's an important point to make is that a lot of these characters are working within certain confines. And when they go outside of those confines, 
then that causes conflict. You know, like in Johnny Guitar, in Once Upon a Time in the West, in uh, the films you're talking about. And then you have the characters like in Meek's Cutoff and in this film where they they try to work within the boundaries, the gender boundaries of the time. Yeah, kind of, kind of defining themselves either – Again, kind of goes back to what I was saying at the top. They're either offering, in this case, it's not resistance, um, but it's maybe more resilience and grit is is what you're seeing in, in Jesse okay. here. So that was a fun list to do. Thank you, Katie. I, as I mentioned, it was there were so many options that I do have some honorable mentions. We can maybe hear if you have one or two as well. We do want to share... As an honorable mention, though, a voicemail that we got from Henrik Hansen. He's from Yalding in Kent, UK. And my bid for uh, best uh, lady in a Western movie would be Linda Hunt's performance of Stella in Silverado, which is among my all-time favorite Western. It's like Lawrence Kasdan thought this is the only Western he would ever get the chance to make. So it's got stampedes and people being driven off their ranches and gunfights in the middle of the city, uh, you know, and the, like the high noon sort of a thing. And Linda Hunt as Stella. It's her bar. She's going to run it. She's poignant. She's wise, a little bit melancholy. She's lived a life, but she's not going to bore you by telling you of her, her life story. And her friendship and love for Kevin Klein's character is the real beating heart of this movie. Some people think because they're stronger or meaner, they can push you around. I've seen a lot of that. But it's only true if you let it be. The world is what you make of it. I like your attitude, but it can be risky. It's a great movie. You should definitely see it if you haven't. It's got the real, let's throw in everything except the kitchen sink. Don't go on and throw the kitchen sink in as well mentality. Thanks very much. So a vote for Linda Hunt in Silverado there, a movie I remember watching many times when I was younger. How about you, Katie? Were there any names you wanted to throw out there yet? Well, uh, one that I, another I debated on, I briefly mentioned Barbara Stanwyck and 40 Guns when I was talking about the Furies. Another one that I debated on was actually my fifth pick. I ended up going with Jennifer Jason Lee because I thought the performance was so great. But if you expand the definition of Western to include a quote-unquote Southern, there's also the character Carrie Washington plays, uh, Brunhilde von Schaft yes. in Django Unchained. She's really good. She's another Survivor character. Absolutely. And... Yeah, I did think about her, too. I didn't quite think about the geography element there. So I'm glad you put out that qualification, an excuse why I could leave her off my list. (laughs) I thought about Marilyn Monroe and the Misfits, um, sort of a more modern Western, Mm -hmm. I would say, for sure. Lily Gladstone in another Kelly Reichert film, Certain Women, also one that's a little bit outside of the bounds. It's contemporary set, but Gladstone does play a ranch hand, and she's She's wonderful in that film. She's so good. Sophia Coppola's The Beguiled is full of great female performances. That's a Southern too, it though. It is isn't it? as I'm saying it, and you pointed that out. Well, see, that's why I left it off my list. So, <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking for sure. Let me follow that through line, though, uh, for another Clint Eastwood connection. Eastwood, of course, was in the original Beguiled. 
How about Francis Fisher in Eastwood's masterpiece, Unforgiven? That is a part that I had forgotten about until we revisited Unforgiven a few years ago for a Sacred Cow review. And man, is she she not only strong in the part, but uh, also it's very integral and crucial to what that movie is doing, even though it's very much a supporting role. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. There are probably a number of other characters and performances who deserved mention. So if you want to share those with us, please do send them to feedback at filmspotting.net. We also want to point you to filmspotting.net, where you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. You can vote in the current Film Spotting poll there as well. We're asking, what is the best performance of the year so far? And if you haven't already, please do check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts. We've got The Next Picture Show and Film Spotting SVU. You can find both of those in Apple Podcasts or through your preferred podcast app. Opening wide this week is Sicario 2, a film at one point we had considered reviewing for this mm-hmm. show, Katie. I think the screening times just didn't quite line up, but yeah. I'm glad I'm glad we were able to see Damsel and consider that. I'd say I'd recommend it. I think I'd tell people to go ahead and see Damsel and make what they will of it. Yeah, I'd recommend Damsel as well because uh, the central conceit of it is very strong. Okay. Sicario 2, of course, is the sequel to the 2015 film starring Emily Blunt. Blunt is not returning for this one, but Josh Brolin and Benicio del Toro are back. Also opening wide is Uncle Drew. This is a basketball comedy with Shaquille O'Neal, Chris Webber, Reggie Miller, and as Uncle Drew himself, Boston Celtics star Kyrie Irving. I don't know. The finals ended a few weeks ago now. I kind of need to scratch my NBA itch. <laughs> Does that mean I'll go see Uncle Drew? We'll, we'll see. How <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> I get. And of course, in limited release is the aforementioned damsel. Katie, thanks so much for playing along this week. Let listeners know where they can find you on social media. Of course, we mentioned you're at the AV Club, but if they want to find more of your work, where should they go? Yeah, I'm on the AV Club pretty much every day of the week. I do film reviews uh, at least one a week, generally. And you can also find me on Twitter. It's not my name. If you search Katie Reif, it's at Future Schlock. Like, do you remember that Alvin Toffler book, Future Shock? I get it. I'm with you. Like I'm that, following but, you. But like that, but Schlock. Future Schlock. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. And yes, Katie is a good follow there, so be sure to check her out on Twitter. Thanks again. This was a lot of fun, Katie. We will be back in two weeks. At that point, Adam will be here with Michael Phillips. They're going to review Sorry to Bother You. That stars Lakeith Stanfield and Tessa Thompson and has my early seal of approval. They'll probably do a top five, but that is yet to be determined. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed the show, please do give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That way we can reach some new listeners. Our music this week was by Nikki Lane. It comes from the album Highway Queen. More information is at NikkiLane.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Katie Reif. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.